Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. Before we get started, I just want to pick up from the very end of last time. Okay. Uh, I did find information on Andrew Carroll, my accountant. Yes. On Twitter, he is at CPA Andrew. All one word. Oh, that's handy. And I put a link to that and a link to his blog. So CPA Andrew. CPA Andrew. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. Cool. For, so, for tax purposes. Tax. Well, or, you know, any other accounting purposes as well. But oh, right. I, I need the tax help personally. Mm-hmm. So, so yay, Andrew. Good job, Andrew. Thanks mm-hmm. very much. Yep. Um. Oh, also, another follow-up. This is just follow-up episode. I have, I have a, another follow-up as well. Really? Oh, I'll go, well, we watched, um, did I tell, I can't even remember. Like, it was literally 38 minutes ago that we talked about the crusade. And I can't remember if I said that there was uh, William Russell, Ian Chesterton, um, bridging narration and stuff. Did I not say that in the podcast? Not in the podcast. Okay, so, um... I remember on the on the nineteen ninety two V A I think it was ninety two ninety two VHS release of the Crusade, uh, which had episodes one and th- no. Now I'm blanking. Can have been ninety two because don't look at me. I have no idea when anything well, came Lion out. The Lion only came out. It was only discovered in nineteen ninety nine. So I guess it must have been one of the last um, VHS release. I don't remember now. Don't tell me. Don't email me and tell me. I'll find out myself. Um, but they had the, uh, William Russell bridging narration mm-hmm. on that VHS release, uh, in character telling us a story about, uh, about the crusade. It must've been obviously after, because he didn't really talk about the, the events of episode one. Um, anyway, that's on the DVD and we watched that, uh, afterwards, which I thought was rather charming. It was awesome. I mean, he was on this neat set that was tons of bookshelves and dark wood, you know, very much a, a BBC period mm-hmm. set, but it's supposed to be his house because he mentioned, yep. like, he walks up to a, a, suit of armor. a suit of armor and says, you know, I laugh about keeping this in the house. I was like, that's not a house. That's like a, <laughs> wow, teachers must have done real well uh, uh, back in, uh, in, in those days. I think what he mm-hmm. did is... In <laughs> what is your Ian headcanon here? In Marco Polo, or I uh, know well, here's what he did. Obviously, remember in the Romans when uh-huh. he takes a little urn and goes a Roman souvenir and runs off a little thing. He probably sells that. Ah, gotcha. In 1965 or whenever, mm-hmm. and earns a million dollars for it because it's like you know perfectly in perfect condition. Gotcha. And then uh, he buys that house. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Or or he. At some point, they stop at some some casino, space casino, mm-hmm. or not even a space casino. Perhaps he they visit somewhere in I don't know the Reign of Terror or something, and he deposits some money. <laughs> he invests it. Invests it, and then two hundred mm-hmm. years later, it uh, has accrued to like a billion dollars. There you go. I like that idea. In interest. Mm-hmm. So there, that's how he buys that mess. But anyway, it was it was very charming. Yeah. William Russell still got it. Isn't he wonderful? He really is. Yeah. Just, just delightful. That was, that was very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've interviewed him too. I know. At Galley three or f- two or three years ago. I can't remember now when it was. I lose track of the years, but. Yeah. That was, uh, it was a butterfly moment with that one. Cause oh, you know. I can imagine. It's Will and Russell, you know, mm-hmm. and then he was like so adored at that Gallifrey one convention when he was there and he was, you know, it's like mid eighties at the time and mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. Anyway, my follow up. Yes. Is, this is not the story that I was thinking it was. I was saying, <laughs> <laughs> I was saying that I knew a really? lot about it. Nope. Right. I was I was thinking of a, a later story that has a first episode that gives you a great like, what the heck is going on kind of moment at the end of it. And this is not the one. I don't know why I was getting that mixed up in my head, but uh, I was, I was thinking of the arc. Oh, 
I suppose so. And I don't know why I like got that mixed up, but well, it has William Hartnell in it, and it's in black and white. Yeah, don't uh, please don't email me and tell me tell me why. Like I've I've, I've I've got it. Yeah, no spoilers. Okay. Um, but yeah, this was a bunch of nonsense. Is what this was. <laughs> what a come down. Oh, it didn't make any sense. I mean, it was a spooky idea, but right. it, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It doesn't make. Any sense. Jump to track of time, obviously. Uh, Like a record player. If they would have gone back to the TARDIS and then Mm -hmm. traveled back in time, X number of hours, minutes, days, whatever, and then waited around for themselves to appear, like... Except that they, except that that would have been them appearing. Mm-hmm. That would have made sense. The glass and the statues suddenly disappearing, that... I mean, maybe if they would have explained it as, you know, they jumped like a groove in the record player and they, if they, they, the doctor figured if they waited long enough, they would jump back into a different groove. Maybe that would have made sense. But the, the way that he explained it didn't make any sense. And, and we have arrived. Like, what? I think Willie Hartnell was having trouble with some of the lines, perhaps, because it looked like he just, uh, maybe, uh, jumped a track in uh, time of some sort. Still, that just seems like I don't know, nonsense. It was a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. You know and what? The fact uh-huh. that they, and the fact that they see themselves like that, right. and then I mean, we haven't gotten to the end of it, so nope. I don't know. But I assume that they're not trapped there forever. And I will, you know, I'll, uh, shut we, up, phone. We got a lazy Doctor Who tweet. Yes, we did. It's so meta. Yeah. Um, just assuming that that doesn't come to pass uh-huh. kind of contradicts what we now know about sort of fixed moments in time and things like that. Because when you think about uh, Angels Take Manhattan, right. when you've got the whole book thing where um, there's the book that was written by, was it written by River or by Amy? Written by River. River, yeah. Yeah. And the doctor keeps saying, no, don't open it because as soon as you've read it, it becomes real. Well, how is looking at yourself being in a in a museum any, like, I feel like that should have the same amount of, of reality as reading a book. Well, I think what's happening... Not that Doctor Who needs to keep no, consistently internal not. rules, but... Well, yeah. Um, I think what's happened is that they've, they've landed at a time in before they've arrived. Then how did their bodies get there? Or rather, after they've arrived. Right, okay. And they're basically waiting for the past to catch up with them, if you will. I won't. Oh, I kind of like that. Waiting for the past. Get to get it? The past thing. Yeah, but why, you know, how would the past... the future catch up with them. How would that... Or they're waiting is, for the future to catch up with them. Is time running... Cell phone. Is time running backwards? Who knows? They've jumped I mean, the time track. I mean, I guess they did have the glass dropping in... Yeah. Nonsense. I, I call absolute total shenanigans on this. Understand that... Uh, and this segues into another thing that I want to talk about with this episode. Um, is that this is, you know... We're towards the end of season two, and for the first, and let's face it, for the longest time, Doctor Who, a show about time travel, is actually dealing with, like, variances in time, even though it clearly doesn't quite understand it. Ham-handedly. Ham-fistedly, perhaps. Yes, Yes. they're all bun vendors. (laughs) I know what you did there. Uh Uh-huh. Um... Yeah, so I guess that the yay for trying something different. And I mean, it is the idea of seeing themselves there is spooky as can be, mm-hmm. but I just don't think the plot 
or I don't even know if plot is the right word, but the story, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I will, I guess I will reserve judgment until I've seen it go farther, but right. based on this one episode, stuff and nonsense. Stuff and nonsense. Mm-hmm. But, but I will say that the, you know, the fact that they can't touch things, that was a cool effect. Yeah, that segues into my next thing, is that uh, these are some pretty advanced effect, effects for 1965. Yeah, that's impressive. Um, Mervyn Pinfield is directing this. First time oh. he's directed since Planet of Giants, I believe. Which I guess would make sense, because that also had also some another, special effects. Yes, did we talk I probably mentioned yeah, this before, Mervyn did. Pinfield yep. in, inventing the, um, the teleprompter. You did not mention... I knew that. He invented the teleprompter. But that's, yeah. that is crazy. Yeah. I had forgotten all about that. Yep. Technical wizard. And so they thought, well, we have a lot of crazy stuff. And there's some, you know, genuinely impressive... When you, when you think that there is, like, no blue screen back then, there's no CSO. That's right. That's all, like, sort of, like, film inlay and, uh, and you know, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's some pretty impressive effects. Remember, this Mervyn Pinfield dies within a, um, a year of this. Oh, yeah, I know. That's sad. Well, he's doing a he's doing a good job as, as far as it goes here. I yeah, have, I have no problem with the direction. Mm-hmm. It is it is interesting. I mean, the sets the sets are neat. I like the models. The you know the building looks like a big yeah. birthday cake. Um, actually, there was one particular camera move that I liked a lot. So when they're walking away from the TARDIS and recognizing that they're not leaving any footprints in the dust, yeah. spooky. That's you know, a neat moment. Yeah. Uh, then the camera then it fades out and then. Uh, comes back up on a close-up of Ian and Barbara sort of huddling their heads together looking back right. towards where the Doctor and Vicky are. And then the camera sort of pulls back as they move away to reveal the doorway of the building that we mm-hmm. had seen in model. And the focus then racks to the door. So it's just like, oh, that's that was a nice transition there. Thumbs there up to uh, Mervyn Pinfield for that. Good job, Mervyn Pinfield. Yeah, I actually wondered who directed <coughs> it during that. Uh, oh, that transition. little thing there. Yep. yep. Um, it was Mervyn Pinfield. I think I probably said this before too. I'm going to repeat myself a lot over the course of this podcast. But uh, <laughs> well, Doctor Who repeated itself a bit over the course. Of I know he was in. Uh, he was played by Jeff Rawl in An Adventure in Space and Time. Who was sort of the guy who was uh, sitting in the control room with Warris Hussein during the first episode, mm-hmm. and, he, and he was also. Um, uh, is it paradoxically? No. Uh, incorrectly, I Shut suppose. Up, Shut up, phone. Uh, he was talking with uh, Sidney Newman for the one scene in 1966 when they were talking about uh, getting rid of Bill Hartnell. Um, but of course, Reverend Pinfield was no longer alive in, mm-hmm. in the real world. So, right. Oh my. Okay. I'm, I'm muting it now. <laughs> our lazy doctor. This is the problem with having a phone that has lazy doctor who notifications on it. Yes. When we're when we're recording another episode, having just released an episode about anyway. It was it was cute to do the Ferris Project podcast style shut up phone thing yes, for a few, but jeepers. Yeah. Um. You know what else I was really impressed by, and so much so that I, I pulled up my uh, iPad to have a look at the Doctor Restoration Team website because I thought, oh my, this restoration job is like immaculate. Like when the yes. the first p- pan across of the model space museum there, I actually thought for a second, is this like? I I thought it was like sort of rudimentary C- CG because some of them they've actually mm-hmm. put, you know, sort of updated but still period effects kind of. Oh. Like, you know, like Dalek Invasion of Earth, there's like a flying saucer. Right. There's yep. uh, some in the Web Planet as well, I mm-hmm. think, that we didn't watch because we mm-hmm. want you to see the original. Um, and I thought for a second, like, this almost looks too good of an image. And so I looked on the on the website, and no, there's no special image at all. This is just, this is par for the course 
for the mm-hmm. Doctor Who restoration I, team. Well, I actually noticed the very, very first shot of the camera panning across their faces in front of, you know, in the TARDIS yeah. when they're standing kind of in the dark. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is crystal clear. I was like, did they, you know, is this a 35 millimeter print that they happen to find <laughs> somewhere or, or, you know, or what? But it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So yay for the restoration team. No, the... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. Not the restoration team. No, but I'm a nerd because mm-hmm. I actually know which episodes of 1960s Doctor Who Good are available on 35mm. You're funny. I think there's five of them. The first one you've already seen, Dalek Invasion of Earth, episode five. It's on 35mm film. Okay. Do you, can I tell you why they do that? Yes. Because, uh, two reasons. Because sometimes they wouldn't, there wasn't a videotape machine to re- available to record on. Mm-hmm. So record on higher quality film as opposed to 16mm. Or if there were a lot of edits to have to do, like more so than would be allotted for videotape and stuff, they would mm-hmm. record it onto 35mm film, which is a lot easier to actually edit. Right. Because you can see the frames that you're doing. Gotcha. That's hmm. why some of those episodes exist as such. Sometimes the reason isn't known. Like the Alcon Vision of Earth episode 5 isn't really noteworthy for the amount of edits, but it um, exists as 35mm films. So it was probably likely that there was a tape machine not available or not functioning. Huh. There you go. That is the Doylist view of Doctor Who once again coming through. I mean, after you were gushing about the crusade for three episodes, I feel I had to chime in there with boring technical talk uh-huh. that amuses me. I'm happy that you're amused, and I'm very glad that some of it exists on 35mm film because, you know, that's gorgeous. It looks super. When they it put really Vidfire does. on it, oh my. Mm-hmm. Just you wait until you see some of the other ones that are on 35mm. Oh, I look forward to it's it. It's glorious. It's my favorite. Anyway. Space Museum, weird, mm-hmm. yeah, weird, and and what'd you call it again? Nonsense. Nonsense. I thought it was a claptrap, but yeah, nonsense. Well, clap, claptrap. Well, no, it's no? nonsense. It's not claptrap. Timey wimey claptrap. It's not timey wimey. It wants to be timey wimey. Tracky wacky. That's what it is. They're it's doing wacky. their best. They're doing their best. Yeah. Well, who was it that wrote this one? Glenn Jones. Glenn Jones. That's right. Yeah. Mm, shaking my head. Glyn Jones. Mm-hmm. Glyn Jones is, uh, has notoriety in the Doctor Who world, you know. Why does that name sound so familiar? I will tell you, because in nine years' time after this, mm-hmm. he will appear in the Sontaran experiment. <laughs> okay. He is the first uh, actor, um, I'm sorry, the first writer, and act, first writer to appear in Doctor Who and also act in Doctor Who. Wow. I think Victor Pem- Pemberton is another one, and of course Mark Gatiss is now the third. That's true. Yeah. Does it count if it's a uh, Doctor Who novel writer who appears in Doctor Who? Because then you got Ian Martyr. Ian Martyr has done a lot. Um, technically, no, but... Well, I'm counting. Well, because he wrote all of... Uh, so, yeah, that's true. Okay, you can count him. Woo! Yeah, there you go. I need a victory here, okay? This was this was yeah, not exactly a... Uh, <laughs> Colin Baker also wrote, wrote a comic strip, I think, in the early 90s as well. Like a whole comic book. Wow. Doctor Who comic uh, strip, yeah. That's cool. Of course, then he appeared first, but... Well, Ian Martyr appeared first before he ever wrote That's a true. Target novelization. That is true. That is very true. And Glyn jo- Jones wrote, uh, a p- wrote a story before he appeared. Right. That's what I mean. This is writing first before oh. he appeared. The other two are the other way around. Perhaps they jumped a time track. Ah. Uh, bring it back home. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well... That's it. I won't subject you to any more of the Space Museum. Yeah. I, after the, yeah. Just, I'm just, I, I liked the scenes with nobody talking. Yeah, Or with spooky. the talking and not being able to hear them. So, you know, it definitely created a mood. Uh-huh. So, I mean, 
I found, like, the mood really, really spoke to me in The Dalek Invasion of Earth. And I liked that so much that even if the story had been dumber than it was, because right. it wasn't dumb, mm-hmm. I probably would have still liked it quite a bit simply because of that. So, I mean, if this is the kind of of mood created that you are really excited by, I thought I would have been, mm-hmm. um, then maybe maybe it's it's still good for for some i'm sure some people like this but well just the the nonsense part of it just turned me off oh. and maybe it's also because it comes hard on the heels of something that i just loved so much there you go. Mm-hmm. something i'm surprised you liked very much yeah well i was surprised too i had this in my head thinking well we better we better we better queue up space museum part 1 just in case this <laughs> all goes pear shaped just to get her back on board, because you've exp- you've said you like the uh, the spacey ones. I do. I, I usually like the yeah. weird the weird stuff, but I guess it needs to still be good. <laughs> be I don't know internally somewhat internally consistent with the the logic of the show and the way time works. Or if you're going to be so just out of left field and go esoteric yeah. and weird, give me. I am fine. I am absolutely fine with the techno babble explanation okay but it needs to be a techno babble explanation that actually works for what they're doing mm-hmm. and this was a techno babble explanation that didn't even make sense with what was happening around them no it's almost like they sort of created a dilemma but didn't actually have a way to get out of it yeah and so they tried to sort of like will it away thinking oh well they won't know it's 1965 they haven't been on the moon yet or they know about time travel humans like we know so much more about time travel now <laughs> Everyone is well versed in time travel and and rocket mechanics to go to the moon. Obviously, of course, of course. Having not been there in over years. forty years, yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Um, episode two is the dimensions of time, not dimensions in, in time, time. Though I it's know. a very very different story. Yeah, that one I've seen. Yeah, we won't be watching that one next. No. No. Or possibly at all. We'll see. We'll see down the line. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe we'll get really drunk. And watch that's that. gonna. That's a long ways away. Many years. I bet you we'll be watching that one. Yeah, you're probably right. We're yeah. completionists. We We're are, nerds. Indeed. We are. Okay. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.